This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 1st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Occupational licensing continues to provide hurdles to success for so many Americans. What states are leaders in reform? At least one federal agency is now pondering facilitating reciprocity among states. Is there any reason to expect that to lead to less licensing of American workers? Lee McGrath is senior legislative counsel at the Institute for Justice. We spoke recently in Louisville, Kentucky. In recent decades, people who required uh, were required to have a license to do a job uh, has gone from 5% to 25%. That's one in 20 to uh, one in four. And this has all sorts of implications for the economy. It has a lot of implications for criminal justice, and we might get into some of those. Uh, but as it stands right now, uh, are there states that are, are waking up to the fact that their economies could be fairly dramatically improved uh, in, in substantial ways if they were to adopt a, you know, a deep digging, uh, heavy lift of looking at occupational licensing pretty much across the board? Uh, states across the country have recognized that occupational licensing is the biggest labor market institution in their states. You hear lots of debate about the minimum wage or right to work and unionism, uh, but only about 2% of workers earn the minimum wage. And now only about 11% of workers are members of, of unions. The big labor market institution is occupational licensing, and it is a costly and I would argue ineffective a way of protecting uh, consumers. And so you have a large and expensive and counterproductive institution making it more difficult for people to work and consumers to choose the suppliers that they want. Are there any states that are looking at this in a, in a comprehensive fashion? There are. In fact, in this last legislative session, we had a couple of really terrific successes. Uh, the biggest one uh, was in the state of Nebraska. Nebraska did something incredibly important. It recognized this right to pursue your calling as a fundamental right. And part of the legislation also adopted the Institute for Justice's inverted pyramid of least restrictive regulations. So what that means is over the next five years, Nebraska is going to look at every one of its occupational licenses and ask the first question, do we need it? Should it be repealed? The second question, if it shouldn't be repealed, what's the reason why there may some might believe there's a market failure? And thirdly, what's if there is such a failure, what's the least restrictive way to regulate that that failure? So there must be something magical about a unicameral legislature or the water in Lincoln, uh, but they are on the forefront of adoption of a rigorous sunset review process. All right. So a sunset review process is basically if you, the licensing board, cannot demonstrate some sort of uh, cost-benefit calculation that shows your regulation to be more uh, beneficial than costly? Is that basically how it goes? Well, that's close. The idea is to have an independent staff analysis, look at those sorts of, of costs, but more particularly, 
look at the rationale that really exists, the evidence that really exists for the government, the state of Nebraska, entering into the labor market and and imposing some regulations. Is the alleged problem a problem of fraud? Is the alleged problem uh, a problem of cleanliness? Or, or, th- or third parties experiencing external, what's the alleged fraud, a problem that needs to be fixed? And then choose the least restrictive regulation to address that problem. Okay, so in, in a way, it is uh, an aim to narrow whatever scope of regulation that could exist to a scope that would uh, deal with the problems that they have actually identified and not simply, well, we've decided that in order to be a cosmetologist or an EMT or a barber, you have to submit to X number of hours and then, uh, you know, for, you know, with no real argument one way or another as to why. Exactly. So it throws out the idea that everything must be licensed. And the pretext, it throws out the idea of the, the pretextual idea that you need licensing for health and safety. So, for example, in Washington, D.C., they choose to regulate kitchens in restaurants, but they don't do it by licensing the cook, the chef, the busboy, and the, wa- and the waiter. Instead, they use a less restrictive regulation. They the, not only the power of reputation they recognize, but also the periodic inspection of those, those kitchens. And so there you have a narrowly tailored regulation to what evidence might suggest is a problem that warrants the government intervening in the labor market. These licensing boards, and this is a, it's an interesting point that you raise because uh, the boards of licensure, they're licensing people. And they're more concerned with the practitioner uh, having gone through some amount of training. They're less concerned with the final product. That's right. So if you think about the biggest fraudster in American history, Bernie Madoff, it wasn't the license by the Securities and Exchange Commission that brought down Bernie Madoff. It was the, the, the regulation under the New York State's banking laws and the Deceptive Trade Practices Act. And so it was <clears throat> it was the regulation dealing with the process of investments, the process uh, of of uh, running an investment uh, investment house. So fraud, something that that libertarians recognize as a problem that is that that the government might intervene to to address isn't the license is not the tool to address fraud much more powerful is the deceptive trade practices act or something or empowering strengthening the powers of the attorney general so targeting specific behaviors exactly Exactly. So what has Texas done or what is Texas primed to do? Uh, We talked about this a little before we started recording and they have a what I would probably uh, say is a uniquely Texas approach uh, to dealing with uh, licensure. So in the upcoming legislative session, uh, legislators will consider a consumer choice bill. And what it does is it empowers the consumer to choose services that are licensed by the state of Texas from either a licensed practitioner 
or an unlicensed practitioner who has given the consumer notice that the service is licensed by the state of Texas and that he is not licensed himself. And presumably that would generate uh, some, I mean, we're in the social sciences, we're concerned about things like this. Presumably this would generate a lot of data that you could really look at to look at that differential to see what the difference between what consumers are willing to pay, uh, uh, how much consumers are willing to pay less in order to have a uh, an unlicensed practitioner. It, I think it will be data rich in that in that you can see consumer behavior. You can see how consumers value a license. Is it a powerful market signal of competence? You can see the power of reputation. Are there lots of practitioners who believe that standing alone with their website, with their reviews on Yelp and and Google, whether their long history of providing services is sufficient for consumers to gain confidence to contract with them? Right. And it's it's traditional when you're going to have somebody do some work on your house or uh, do some other uh, work for you that you would ask for a referral from a friend. The internet has sort of uh, multiplied the power of those kinds of recommendations many, many times over. Uh, I used to hear this argument against having the government directly involved in providing a service to uh, called the Yellow Pages test, and we might might as well call this like the Yelp test. Yes, and you know, one way you might think about that: if you're a practitioner, if you're a carpenter or an electrician uh, or even a, a lawyer. Uh, what do you fear more? Do you fear a letter from a licensing board or do you fear a bad posting on Yelp? Increasingly, people know that taking a reputational hit on Yelp can be quite detrimental. Is there any uh, move uh, more broadly than uh, what Texas is doing? As you said, Nebraska had a, had a big win. Is there anything bigger going on. There's nothing bigger. What periodically you'll see is that states will attempt to to repeal certain license, licenses. For The state of Florida, for example, has attempted to, uh, in the last couple of years, has attempted to uh, uh, put bills together, uh, put in a bill, the repeal of ballroom dance instructors and yacht brokers and interior uh, designers. And uh, that has had mixed mixed success. Uh, it tends to unite all the all the advocates for regulation together. So, uh, before we started recording, you mentioned that the Labor Department uh, at the federal government federal level is looking at licensure more seriously. Of course, this uh, is sort of just the latest recognition by the feds that this is important. Um, the Obama administration, of course, famously cited. Uh, work by IJ um, on occupational licensing and report that it put out. What is the Labor Department doing? So in many respects, the advocacy that has come out of the Cato Institute and the Institute for uh, for Justice uh, and others has gone mainstream. The, uh, the Department of Labor uh, under the Obama administration gave a grant to the National Conference of State Legislators uh, to, and other groups, uh, the Council of State Governments, to form a consortium of, of and 11 states are now looking at uh, and holding meetings uh, and developing strategies to look at how occupational licensing is 
uh, is uh, exists in their states and what steps can those states individually take to address this big labor market institution. All right. So what what are we likely to see come out of that? I think what you'll see is you'll see some acknowledgement that there are all uh, that there really are certain occupations that don't need to be regulated, that consumers have available information and that the great problem of knowledge gap uh, isn't sufficient for regulation. So I think you'll see some repealing repealer uh, uh, recommend, r- recommendations, as we've seen in Michigan. Uh, and some other other states, uh, as we've seen with hair, hair braiders, uh, for example. Uh, you'll also see some process bills, I think, like Nebraska. Nebraska has, has set a precedent that, that, that state governments should be, should be looking at these things regularly and deciding whether they should continue to be intervening between buyer and, and seller. And then maybe we'll see what happens, but maybe what uh, if it catches on in Texas, this idea of opting out, consumers opting out of occupational licensing altogether and choosing a non-licensed occupation may gain some traction. Uh, for uh, listeners who get their hackles up when the federal government decides to be involved in any way, shape, or form in an issue that is properly the purview of states, uh, <laughs> throw some cold water on the idea that this is a good thing <laughs> that, that, the Fed, <laughs> that the feds actually uh, might get involved here. Because I don't, I, I my inclination is that if it can be done badly by the feds, it will be. So everything is a a curse and a blessing. So the blessing is that this is now a fair game uh, and appropriate game uh, to look at at this institution. It it has earned a sort of mainstream imprimatur. But the challenge always is is half-baked efforts, half-baked reforms. And uh, there's a corner of advocacy uh, that that looks at issues that are that are less than a free market approach. So there's an emphasis in some corners as it relates to the issue of reciprocity or the issue of spouses of military people. These are all important issues, but the most free-moving, most portable license is one that doesn't exist. And so those who are focused on the issue of reciprocity are really focused, there's some risk of their actually elevating the amount of regulation that goes goes on. Okay, so if uh, Virginia and Kentucky or uh, Virginia or and Maryland decide, hey, let's look at the licenses that you have and the licenses that we have. Of course, the uh, IJ has produced the license to work report, which looks at uh, moderate to low income occupations that are uh, require licenses and don't, and which states license them and which don't. You're suggesting that uh, when two states look at a an area of endeavor, they will take the more restrictive regime and say, well, yeah, yeah, we in Virginia, we can adopt this restrictive Maryland regime if you adopt our restrictive regime in this other area of endeavor. Absolutely. So the risk and the easy path is not is for the state 
that has the lower licensing requirements to raise their licensing requirements in the spirit of portability and reciprocity. All right. So and you and I would look at the issue and say, well, this state licenses this thing and this other state doesn't. What does the state that doesn't license this thing know <laughs> that the other state doesn't? Evidence. What a concept that that uh, uh, that the state that doesn't license it uh, uh, isn't having an epidemic of negligence and fraud. And the state that does license it should uh, should actually have the burden to prove why why that it license uh, exists and should be made more port, uh, portable. My friend Steve Slavinsky at uh, he, he is, I believe, at Arizona State. Um, he has looked at some of the what may be criminal justice implications of occupational licensing. And for, for you know, for many states, you can do a job in prison. Uh, as we found with uh, fighting fires in the in the Northwest, uh, but when you get out of prison, you're no you can't do that job. And in many states, just the licensing requirement alone is enough to p- prevent somebody who's paid their debt to society to actually rejoin the workforce in a, in a way that they may have sufficient training in. Uh, but over and above that, a lot of states have requirements for certain licenses, uh, some more than others. That say, oh well, you're a convicted felon. You're not, you may not even apply for this license. That's right. Uh, uh, Professor Slavinsky has done a, a, a done a great service, given a, uh, to to showing the the connection between states with high licensing requirements and and in fact, those states have higher criminal recidivism. Now it's tough to show causality, but there certainly he shows uh, correlation, and what he shows is that this is coming about from two ways. One is the outright ban. So the as you talk about, uh, Caleb, the the idea that those those uh, wild prisoners, those people in California who are f- volunteering to fight fires, they come out of prison and they are banned by uh, California firefighting licensing laws from working in what they previously volunteered to do. But additionally, and that's the most potent type of of restriction in terms of causing higher criminal recidivism, or at least showing a correlation to higher criminal recidivism, but also subjecting people to a review process in which they have to prove the negative. They have to prove that their past crimes, they will not repeat again, and they will, and therefore they won't harm consumers. And so today there is a process in, in many states in which the burden is on someone to prove the negative. Now, we think there's a solution for that. We think that there should always be a presumption of liberty including for those with a criminal record who have paid their dues back to society. And that if there is a burden, the burden should be on the licensing board to prove that that person with a, a, a criminal record will offend again, and it will be a significant harm to consumers. Right. And it's, it's, it's uh, that individual, not that category of people who have this uh, something of an, it's, a, it's like an anti-license uh, a felony conviction, so it can act as an anti-license for people. The scarlet letter of never being able to work again in a licensed occupation. Exactly. And the, that burden should be on the government. 
Lee McGrath is Senior Legislative Counsel at the Institute for Justice. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 